This is B-Side. I'm Andrea Seabrook, and I'm on an elevator. Let me just push the button here. Hold on. Okay, today we're talking about personal space. You know, that invisible hula hoop that floats around your waist, or that boundary that we have between us and the world. Well, most of us have it anyway. Seems like we wouldn't have very much to talk about, actually, if people weren't always invading other people's personal space. And that's where I come to this elevator. <laughs> the one I'm standing in right now carries people up and down the floors of the Maryland Institute College of Art in, in Baltimore. Um, but it's pretty boring. I mean, it's kind of, you know, stainless steel and um, it's kind of normal. But it's also kind of a sociological study of personal space. It's one of the few places in a busy modern society where people are actually forced to stand within, say, four feet of each other. And that means it's also a pressure cooker. It's kind of itchy, uncomfortable, anxious place to be for very long. What's your name? Paul. Joanne. You guys have any thoughts about personal space? As long as you respect my personal space, everybody's cool. Um, yeah. And yes, I need my personal space to maintain my sanity. <laughs> Don't el aren't elevators a little weird for personal space? Yeah, true. Cause you never know who's hopping on the elevator. Maybe some weirdo or something. As long as they don't get too close, <laughs> I'm fine, you know. But if you can still have your personal space on the elevator, as long as someone is not right up on you. Yeah, as long as they don't stink too, because they can have an <laughs> elevator ride too. Make sure you got good hygiene, you washing up, soap, water, everything, the whole nine. Oh, you are just too funny. <laughs> Now let me give you an example of a horrible invasion of personal space. What if someone walked right up to you, big smile on their face, and started caressing your head? And then when you got uncomfortable and started to squirm, they stick their finger in your mouth. Okay, this kind of situation actually happens all the time. But because the people it happens to are babies, no one thinks it's weird or bad, except of course, lots and lots of mothers, like Sarah Bond. It's happening again. I'm in the grocery store and I'm holding my nine month old son and he's smiling at the clerk and she wants to touch him. She is reaching over the counter, practically leaning over the counter, trying to get to him. And I feel so rude, but I don't want her to touch him. We've just gotten over his last cold. And here's this stranger. I don't know if her hands are clean. You know, she's been touching money all day. And she's reaching for his face. I'm really conflicted. Instead of saying, no, don't touch him. What do I do? I let her touch him. And I leave the store feeling just awful about what happened. Why can't I say no? Well, saying no doesn't feel right because this woman just wants to touch a cute baby. She finds him darling. So I let it happen. I don't know what to do. I even went and asked my friend Hildy, who's a therapist, what she thinks about it. I do think there's something about a baby that causes us to drop our barriers, our boundaries. And 
it seems understandable to me that when an adult person looks at a baby, an adult doesn't feel any need to defend himself or herself in the presence of a baby. And so there's an idea that neither does the baby, which is a projection. It's, it's not a very sophisticated way to look at a baby. And I think if people thought about it, they would no more approach a baby than they would any other person. I know that moms have the right to ask people not to touch their babies. It's harder to do this than you would think. I never have the words at the ready when someone's reaching towards my son. And I only know two moms who actually do, who feel comfortable saying, hey, don't touch. And they're pretty tough women. I wouldn't want to mess with them anyway. Most moms I know, they just let it happen. And then they feel really uncomfortable and feel like maybe they didn't intervene when they should have for their baby's sake. And I've heard about this from a few friends. My friend Julie, just the other day in Home Depot, and my friend Jen, when she went to a party. We had Amelia with us when she was only about three months old. And someone who my husband barely knew, who I had never met before, asked to hold her. And so I I sort of reluctantly said, okay, because I didn't want to be rude, but I was sort of uncomfortable. And um, she began to fuss a little bit and to quiet her down he put his finger in her mouth for her to suck on. And I was so mortified when I watched this happen. I really didn't know what to do. I was sort of paralyzed for a moment. And then I went over to the man and I said, I have to go now. I have to take her home now. And I think he was sort of confused about what was so wrong. And I didn't say anything. I just took her and I went home. And I was was so disgusted. I, you know, he had been shaking people's hands all evening, and who knows what was, you know, we're not normally that worried about germs, but it was just, I thought that was so over-the-top, just rude and unbelievable. I find that the discomfort is pretty common among moms when someone touches their kid, but people interpret it in different ways. My friend Monica interprets it as her problem. Everywhere I went, people kept saying, oh, he's so cute, I just want to eat him up, which was kind of a new expression for me. But then uh, we went to visit his East Coast relatives, and in fact, they did eat him up. And um, th- it, it practically looked like they were French kissing him. And, uh, and my husband and I, really, really uncomfortable for us. But again, I just watched them doing it and waited for him to come back to me. <laughs> I figure that's, hi- that's him in the world, um, my discomfort is my own discomfort. The hardest part about saying no is that this spontaneous desire to touch our babies comes from a really, really loving place and the person who's reaching out. My friend Tanya really gets this. I think on the one hand, I loved it because I thought, it's so wonderful that everybody in the world loves Orion just like we do. And it it felt right, you know? Of course people wanted to come up and, and squeeze his cheeks and give him kisses and, you know, of course, why wouldn't they? And it was sort of almost an affirmation of, of our love for him. Um, but on the other hand, they were complete and total strangers. <laughs> and because I carry my son or I wear him in a baby carrier, if you want to touch him, you're getting really close. You're coming right up into our personal space. And by violating that space, you're making all of my alarm bells go off. My mama bear instincts just come roaring to life, and I want to protect my little cub. Mothers are in the position of needing to protect their children, and 
protecting doesn't just mean protecting from serious danger, but it also means protecting from minor insults or um, intrusions into a baby's space. I find the problem for me is that I don't always have words at the ready to fend off that unwanted caress or that breach of my son's personal space. It's funny to me that more people come up and ask, hey, can I touch your dog? Then they ask, hey, can I touch your baby? So what I have come up with is kind of a set of baby dance moves. And when I'm wearing him and I see someone reaching out, ooh, I lean back or I do a quick sidestep. And I don't have to get into that whole thing of having to say no to a well-meaning baby space invader because I don't want to. The world should be a friendly place when you're nine months old. And you know what? It's cool to touch his feet. And if you want to touch the rest of him, wash your hands and then ask me. (laughs) For B-Side, I'm Sarah Bond. guys have any thoughts about personal space? Personal space? Um, yeah, I've been hanging out here talking to people about personal space and elevators. Um, it's invaded <laughs> right now with this microphone in my face. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's all right. It's all right. I don't mind. <laughs> Tell me your name. I'm Jordan. So, uh, Jordan Sanford. Aren't, aren't elevators kind of like crazy places for yeah, personal Yeah, they are. Fun? I got stuck in the elevator last week. It was crazy. <laughs> and what, like, were you with people? No, I was by myself. Oh my God. Yeah, it was, it was not fun, but whatever. Okay, so Sarah Bond told us about invading baby space and how that is particularly anxiety-ridden for women. Men also have their own boundaries. And in some locations, those boundaries are bright and clear as Rob Sachs found out. The most private place in a man's life is the bathroom. Well, probably it's the bedroom, but definitely the bathroom is a close second. You're staying there half naked, emitting smells and sounds that when done in private are regrettable. In public, they're deplorable. And yet, male public restroom design pays virtually no consideration to this eminent threat of embarrassment. Unlike what I hear women's restrooms have, the stalls found in men's rooms are grotesque locks that don't work, and doors that seldom shut if they're even there. Which brings us to the urinals. Aligned neatly like soldiers shimmering in white, these sinks with flushes force us to stand shoulder to shoulder, mere inches apart. To combat this awkward closeness, men have come up with a code to eke out what little personal space the restrooms afford. Violations of this code can bring menacing glares, furrowed eyebrows, and sneering remarks. But how do you know what's right and what's wrong? Most often, this crucial knowledge is handed down from generation to generation. 
I learned the code from my older brother, Mike. As he explained to me, 95% of the time you're using the men's room, you're going there to urinate. The other stuff, well, we'll get to that later. Mike says a positive bathroom experience starts with having a realtor's mindset. Location, location, location. First and foremost is the amount of urinals that are available to you. Secondly, how many are actually being occupied at one moment. You want to make sure that when you walk into a men's room that you are as far away as possible as the person next to you. You want to make sure that you're at the farthest end so when people are actually coming in, they're not walking right into where you're going. Uh, another important thing is to make sure that you have distance between you and another male. If there's an empty urinal between you two, don't go right next to him. Once you've made it to the urinal, keep your eyes looking straight ahead, your shoulders square, and your stance even. My buddy Eric Rassman adds, Don't talk to me while I pee. I don't want to hear it. Let me concentrate. Got it. But in some men's bathrooms, there are no options. I speak, of course, of the bathrooms at large sporting events. It's a situation where hundreds of men with full bladders line up out the door. No open urinals, no open stalls. Sometimes the only place to go is the trough, which, unfortunately, is exactly what it sounds like. Long, rectangular, and low to the ground, similar in structure to what barn animals eat out of, but with drains. It's impossible to forget your first stadium bathroom experience. My buddy Eric is no exception. Veteran Stadium, there was actually a circle trough where you actually had to look at the other guy that was peeing at you. Now that's a whole, that's, that's a very interesting situation. The rules of that were that even if you had direct eye contact, you were just supposed to look just left of his head just to make sure that he knows that, hey, I see you there, but I'm not gonna acknowledge your existence. Actually, stadium bathrooms can be fun. My high school pal Frank Jeffrey says, when you're there, you root for the fellows standing at the urinals just as much as you root for the guys out on the field. I think it was late January, probably back sometime in, in 2000, I guess it was 2003, uh, 2002 maybe, NFC Championship game, and uh, went into the, the public bathroom right before the kickoff. And it, the lines were probably going like 10, 20 deep. 10, 20 deep. And I, uh, I rolled in there. And, you know, in, the, in those situations, you're, you're so caught up in the moment. You're caught up in the camaraderie of being in there. And you're just, everyone's trying to, you know, trying to get through and make the play happen. Just piss and go, piss and go. And that, that's, really, that's really the philosophy that you take. You get into it and the guy's behind you, you know, patting you on the back. Like, come on, let's go. Make it happen. And, and, uh, and you do. And you really get into it. It really sort of, especially football games, man, you get, in, you get into that. And you, you just make it happen. So no, no hesitation. Seeing how that's pretty much the pinnacle of urination experiences, I'll now turn to that other bathroom scenario. When do you do number two in the public bathroom? Do you never want to go number two in a public bathroom? The only times I can never think that I've done it are in those extreme, extreme cases where you have no way of stopping it at all. It's easy to see why. In those times of extreme anguish, the male psyche pretty much resorts to a state of primordial reflexes. Get in, get it done, and get out. It's a troubling experience that hopefully will happen only once or twice during one's lifetime. Knowing the code will help you navigate your way through a men's room with little or no hassle. 
But in case you're wondering about those absolute no-nos, half of you can use your imagination or memories. The other half, I'll leave you with this last piece of brotherly advice from Mike. I think taking your pants all the way down to the ground while you're peeing at the urinal is considered inappropriate behavior. Uh, trying to shake people's hands, but I wouldn't worry about other people around you. You just kind of got to get up there and do your business. And, uh, you know, I think that you just got to be strong. Okay, so I'm still in the elevator. I've been up to the top floor and down to the bottom like literally like 10 times by now. And I have to say that most people are doing a pretty good job of completely ignoring me, really. I mean, even though I'm standing on the elevator with recording equipment and, you know, a sort of engaging smile on my face, it's like because we're forced to stand close to each other, far closer than, than strangers would ever choose to stand, we have to be really, really quiet and act like we're all alone. Of course, though, if I were alone, I'd probably be hiking up my pantyhose or something like that and hoping there isn't a security camera on the elevator. If you have an office job, you know what I'm talking about. In the world of cubicles and desks, the elevator can actually be the most personal space any of us get in an entire day. And what if you didn't even have that and you didn't have a home to go to at night? B-side producer Hannah Jaffe-Walt followed one homeless man to see what kind of personal space he could find on the streets of Seattle. My name is Ralph. I sell real change newspapers, and I live outside. Uh, this is Trader Joe's on Median Hill. So it's a good selling spot. Uh, people are very responsive here. We buy these for 35 cents a copy down at the office, and then we keep, we resell them for a dollar, or sometimes you get a couple dollars. The day I, you know, being my day's just starting, I wonder what kind of a day it's going to be. Will it be a lucky one? Steve, what's up? How you doing, Ralph? Good. Good. Even though I don't have money, I like being around people that have money, you know. Just a better attitude. Hi. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. You have a great day. So now we're off to the Compass Center. Tuesday and Fridays, shower days. We'll take the bus down to the end of the ride free zone. That's one thing about staying outside, though. It's, it's the little things that you take for granted when you live inside, like a shower. I mean, you have to work at being clean. How you doing today? How you doing today? Fine. Okay. Get your first name and last name. Alrighty. Now we wait our turn for a shower. It's not too bad. There's only one, two people really ahead of us. They supply soap and a towel, and usually razors if you need one. I usually try to get in and out as quick as I can. This is more like conducting business rather than socializing. Maybe in the beginning you're uncomfortable, but after t after a while you just you don't think about it. You just do what you have to do. You know? And as far as personal space, you don't have any personal space. When you have a place to live, then you have personal space. Okay, I'm up now. See you in a few minutes.
We're walking down 2nd Avenue West. We're going just past St. Anne's School right here. Those are the kids you hear. Mine's grown now. My son's a 23-year-old staff sergeant in Fort Bragg. He did eight months over in uh, Iraq. He, he came home a year ago. I was glad that nightmare was over for me. Now, he's a good soldier. He's third generation airborne, so he was born with that stuff in his blood. Now we're just about to hit Cary Park. The best view in Seattle. You look over there, you can see Alki Beach all lit up. Usually late afternoon when I come back up the hill, I'll sit around in the park here. And it's nice and quiet here. Usually my uh, evening cocktail is, consists of a Coke and a pint of vodka. When you're outside, you have to really go to hard liquor because beer, with beer you'd be constantly looking for a bathroom and that can, that's just not worth it. There's a girl I hang out with. I met her through selling the papers up here. She lives in this neighborhood. We kind of like each other, but you know, the bottom line is I'm homeless. Really? Um, we'll go down by Parsons Park. Parsons Park is is secluded. That's probably the most personal space I have. Sometimes I take her to my spot. She's not real wild about that, but I wish she goes there. When you're outside, you have so much time on your hands. But when you're housed, you don't have as much time. But in reality, you do have the same amount. It just doesn't seem as much. Well, we're headed over to my spot. Homeless people don't have a place, they have a spot. And uh, it's actually a good place. It's a vacated garage. I'm always concerned about being seen. So we'll walk up. I'll look around. And when I cut, you follow me. So we'll make sure it looks good, no cars. I'll have the camel in just a second. Then there's good light. I pull my bag out here. I try to make it look unlived in when I'm here. That's why I I bag up my stuff and I fold the futon in half. The only thing here in mind is my this sleeping bag. This is where I sleep. Yeah. Well I tell you what. Closest thing I've had to an apartment in a while. isn't very big. It's like maybe four by five or six feet. It's definitely more intimate a space than most people choose to be in with strangers. And that's really what it's about. Intimacy. 
I mean, I don't have a problem, obviously, if my husband or a really good friend leans into my personal space for a while, because I accept their intimacy. It's when one person rejects the intimacy that you even become aware of personal space at all, don't you think? So I think it can be really hard to be in a personal spaceless world. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, I'm gonna lose you in an elevator. I was just gonna see if you're home for the stuff to carry out. Have any thoughts about personal space? No? <laughs> about elevators? No? Okay. That's exactly the kind of thing that drives Rich Bartlebaugh crazy. He's going along in life, minding his own business, when he's suddenly forced to hear bits of deeply personal information about other people's lives from those, you know, those loud cell phone talkers. And in Rich's view, they are intruding on his personal space. It's really true. What the pioneering and visionary salesmen have always said, technology is bringing us closer together. Never before have so many said so little so often, and all at a nice monthly rate, as in the global village that the cell phone makes possible. The only problem is, it's all taking place in my world. At the post office window, at the ATM machine, I'm the only person who doesn't own a cell phone, but that's okay. I can reach out into your exotic and interesting piece of the veldt, just by opening my ears and letting you let me fly, 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 fly away with you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Bridget's telling us to go to her party. Her birthday party. She's turning what? 12? I should be happy for the Hallmark moments, but I can only grouse. My God, there's a second generation on the way. They live. There are many chatty Cathy's on the subway. What's up? Hi. Hi. You sleeping? Oh, okay. I'm bringing some plant You, you hungry? No, not hungry. Just sleeping. Ta-ta for now. There have been serioso studies performed of how Gabby Gaberson reacts when you walk up on his conversation and violate his personal space. I'm more irked by the opposite phenom. I'm sitting quietly, you're jawing, and you violate the common law distance rule. I was here first. The TV needs to say VHS as the source that you're looking at. And you change that by using the TV remote control. Meet my coworker Danny. Using For privacy, I'll call like Danny Bob. Bob views the cell phone as a descendant of a string and two cans. Just like Crazy Eddie, the key is volume, volume, volume. The TV needs to stay on. The TV needs to be on. You don't want it on channel three. You want it on VHS. So you need to choose the video select button or video input button on the TV. Rude, rude, rude. I plot my revenge. And here it is, an annotated audio commentary with Bob. You mean you see, like, channel three, you see video, you see a picture? Shut up. Well then put a tape in the VCR and push play. You're seeing that channel three through the VCR, probably. Shut up. Don't even use remote. Just go and put the tape in and push the play button on the VCR. Shut up. The VCR remote. I don't shut know up, kind shut up, is. shut Cuba, up, shut 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 up, It's probably the one that's under the table between the two chairs. So that's how it all went in my mind. My mind is the last personal space that still flies my flag. But I'm not going to do that freak out anytime soon. Probably.
pretty chatty in this elevator today actually I'm finding I mean some people ignore me other people have lots to say but you know personal space I'm finding is actually not that easy to talk about it's kind of a meta concept everybody knows it exists but no one can actually see it I mean I guess the best way to understand it is to kind of you know step to the side cock your head a little bit and squint at it for a while like we've done this time on b-side Okay, Jane, stop this crazy thing. Bringing the show to this elevator has been fun, but I think I need some time alone, away from the elevator. Let me hit the button for the lobby. If you like life here on the B-Side, check out our website, www.radiobside.org. You'll find stories and music there, as well as all our past shows. This episode of B-Side was brought to you by Marie Matheson, with editing help from Molly Peterson, Renee Gattel, Stacey Bond, and Michael Fitzhugh. The senior producer is Tamara Keith. The theme music was crafted by Dave Kaufman. This elevator was brought to you by the lovely Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore. And I'm Andrea Seabrook. We'll hear you next time on B-Side. B-Side.